0: And as we begin our time in the Word uh, this morning, let's just read our passage. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We've been in the of 1 John together for quite some time and uh, what, what I'd like to do is just show you something I showed you at the very beginning which is a map of where John would have been located and the people to whom he is writing okay so we find that here and Ephesus is kind of highlighted because that is where John would have been located John would have been located. He lived the last part of his life in Ephesus. He spent some time on the island of Patmos. That's We know that from the book of Revelation, right? And the seven locations highlighted here are the seven churches of Revelation that you find in the first couple chapters of Revelation there. And uh, this is the area of Asia Minor. Now, there would have been other bodies of churches, but I highlight these because we know them by name and John has addressed them before. What do we know about John's original audience. We said just a couple of things. One is that they were believers. Two is that they were being deceived. You remember that? Three, they needed instruction, as we all do. And four, they needed assurance of their salvation because that was being tested. They needed to be assured that what they believed was the right thing and that they had life in the name of the Son of God. They were being questioned about that. There's a big question being asked, and the big question is, who are the true children of God? I think if we ask that question before we start reading 1 John, we're going to find the answers. If we ask the wrong question, we're going to get different answers. How do I live my most abundant life? And then you start reading 1 John. I don't think you're going to find the answer unless you redefine what abundant life means. Unless you mean life eternal. Eternal. And you find it in the Son of God. But it seems to be that if you ask the wrong question, you're going to be searching for an answer that may not be found. What is the answer we're looking for? John is answering a question. Who are the true children of God? They are being questioned. Are you a true child of God? A group of people rises up and they say, we are the true children of God. And they look at us and they say, and you are not the true children of God. And then we start to question. Well, do I believe the right thing? Have I had faith in the name of the Son of God? And is he the Son of God? And have I believed the right things? How do I know that I know that I'm a child of God? And so John begins to answer all of these questions by creating this contrast between those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. And he's been doing that for us very clearly and kind of on repeat, which is how John communicates with us. In this big question, he's said two things. One, how do the children of God believe? That is, what do they believe? And then second, how do the children of God behave? How do they act? Because if you say you're a child of God while you hate God's children, what does that tell you? You're not truly a child of God. That's what John has told us. So it's not only how we believe, but it is also how we behave because how we behave proves what we believe to be true, right? Right? How we behave proves what we truly believe. If, your believe. if your behavior does not match your beliefs, then you don't actually have faith in your beliefs. John is trying to help these churches understand. He's trying to help us understand. God wants us to hear these things. Now, most recently, we were in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. That's where we were last week. And in that, John was saying, everyone who believes that Jesus... Is the Christ? Everyone who loves the Father, everyone who loves the children of God, is a child of God. That's what he was trying to help us understand. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ belongs to God. Everyone who loves the Father belongs to God. Everyone who loves the children of God belongs to God. Because if you don't belong to God, you're incapable of doing those things. It is only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has overcome the world. And what is the world? The world is that sphere of sin that comes in and corrupts us, holds us captive to disobey, to rebel against God. But it is only those who have faith in Christ that overcome that, that are able to escape that rebellion. If you have not had faith in Christ, you're incapable of escaping that sphere of rebellion. You will persist in it. You can't get out of it. You're locked in it. You can't help but rebel against God. So here's the issue. Both groups that John is confronting say they believe in Jesus. Both groups say they believe in Jesus. There's just a problem. Do you know people in your life or groups that say they believe in Jesus, but you say, yeah, but I don't think what you mean is what I mean. When you say you believe in Jesus, I mean this, and I think you mean something completely different. Well, a very similar thing was happening here for John and these churches because a certain group was saying we believe in Jesus and this these churches were saying and we believe in Jesus. John is helping them to get their terms right and say, so let's get it straight. You guys believe this and you belong over here. You guys believe this and you belong over here. Children of God, children of Satan, those who are in the light, those who are in the dark. Let's be clear. And so we arrive at, Chapter 5, verse 6. Let's look at it. So John is going to now define who this Jesus is. And I think for all of us, as Jimmy was telling us earlier, we have an ever craving to know more of him. It it is a thing that's never never truly satisfied. When we say satisfy us with your love, what we're saying is all these other things that I'm attempting to satisfy my soul aren't working. Satisfy me with you, but then I'm gonna learn that, oh, there's only more of you to get. There is more. I wanna continue to be satisfied every day, every morning before the sun comes up. I want to be satisfied with you and with you alone, and I want to know more of you. I want to know who you are, and it seems like it's just a a deep well that is, as I go into the knowledge of God, it only gets deeper. I want to know more of you. If you ever find yourself just being entirely satisfied, I know enough of God. Please leave me there. We have a problem. Your heart is no longer craving your Savior. I've had enough. You know what it means to be fully satisfied in that regard, don't you? As we eat and we overeat and we say, I don't want any more. That's really, really good, but please don't give me any more. It's hurting now. I've had too much, right? You ever felt that way about your Savior? I learned that, and it kind of hurts. I don't want any more right now. And that old rebellion creeps back up in us, sure. But there are some who never crave after God, and that's the point that John is making. So he begins to tell us about this Jesus. You have this Jesus that you've defined, and you have this Jesus that you've defined. You have defined him differently. Only one of you has defined him properly. So let's talk about who this Jesus is. So that brings us to 1 John 5, 6. Look at what it says. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Okay. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. See, so don't you get it now? And probably you say, no, I don't get it now. I'm actually more confused now. What does that mean, that he came by water and blood? Not by water only, mind you, but by water and blood. Okay, so before we move on, we have to acknowledge this, is that there was an accepted belief by those secessionists, those, that group that left, and that is that Jesus came by water. Everyone agrees about this. Both groups agree Jesus came by the water. Fine. But the other group, the secessionists, they did not accept that Jesus came by the blood. So John is trying to make it clear. Jesus didn't only come by the water, he came by the water and the blood. This group denies the blood, and they're wrong. What is the water and the blood? Because Jesus didn't come by water only. He came by the water and the blood. And if we get this wrong, we've defined Jesus improperly. So let's get it right. What does does it mean that he came by water and blood? In order to answer this question, we need to look back at a guy named Irenaeus. Now, he lived from about 130 to the year 200 or so. Okay, so that's a, a generation... Possibly you might say two generations removed from, uh, from Jesus, the apostles. Remember, John was living uh, still in Ephesus even between the years of 85 to 100. So, And if he was born in the year 130, he's born the generation after, right? Now, something interesting about this guy, Irenaeus, is that he was discipled under another man with a great name, Polycarp. Irenaeus was discipled under Polycarp, and the really interesting thing is that Polycarp was discipled under John himself. So there is a connection of discipleship from Irenaeus to Polycarp to John, who wrote the letter that we're reading. Irenaeus writes something in the year 174, between 174 and 189, and he writes talking about this passage, talking about this issue. Are you interested to know what he had to say about this thing, about the water and the blood? Because he was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John. What does he say? John, the disciple of the Lord, preaches this faith, and he seeks, by the proclamation of the gospel, to remove that error, which by Cerinthus had been disseminated among men. So doesn't that make it clear? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) what does that mean? Uh, So there was a guy uh, named Serenthus who lived a little bit earlier. Uh, He was more uh, living at the same time as John the Apostle. And Serenthus died about the year 100, which is about the time of John the Apostle. So they were living at the same time. Now, this guy Serenthus, he... He was a Jewish Egyptian. That is, he was a Jew, probably a converted Jew, who was living in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria, Egypt was where all the world's knowledge kind of converged. And there were new schools of thought being brought about at the time. And so a Jewish man living in Alexandria, Egypt, would have had access to all these kind of new thoughts. And he was actually raised in it. And so what he believed was kind of a blend between a form of early Gnosticism and then Jewish belief, and then also Christian belief. And he did what? He said, I like this, this, and this, and here's how they can all work beautifully together. And someone that does that is called a syncretist. That's right. A blending together of ideas and beliefs. Okay, so what does that have to do with our text today? Well, I'll tell you one thing is that John one day found himself uh, needing to go to the public bathhouse in Ephesus. And as he went to the public bathhouse in in Ephesus, as he entered, some people told him, hey, you know that uh, Cerinthus is in here? And he said, no, I didn't know. And so he immediately ran out of the public bathhouse saying to those around him, if he is in there, surely God will bring this house in on itself. And he didn't want to be around when it happened. John the Apostle did not have a high view of this guy, Cerinthus, Reason being, he was spreading his false teaching all throughout the area. Where? For Asia Minor. What was his teaching? We're going to just summarize these teachings of Serenthianism, because when you add ism, it just means a system of thought, right? Serenthianism was teaching what? That there was an earthly man, Jesus, and there was a heavenly being, Christ. And listen to what happened. is that the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and departed from him at the time of his crucifixion. That's what this man was teaching. The the Christ came upon Jesus where? His baptism. What, What was there at his baptism? Water. And departed from him at his crucifixion. And what was there at his crucifixion? Blood. They would say, That Jesus the Christ, yes, was there in water at his baptism. But Jesus the Christ was not present with the blood because that could never be that the divine Christ being, essence, could ever be crucified or killed. So they rejected that concept. So the water and the blood, what is this generally in relation to? I would say the water and the blood point to the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry. That is, when Jesus was baptized with water and the end of his ministry, they would say when the Christ departed from him at his crucifixion. I would say that was the end of his earthly ministry when he was crucified, wouldn't you? So, when Jesus was baptized to when he was crucified, the water and the blood... So at his baptism, according to Serenthus, at the time when Christ was joined with Jesus and at his crucifixion, the time at which the Christ departed from Jesus before he was crucified, understand. What is being said here? I have said it this way, is that this is the belief of the secessionist, uh, the water and the blood. Uh, Go on to the next one. I don't know why that additional slide was there. A water-only gospel is one that sees Jesus as a good man but not as the God-man. Because a water-only gospel without the blood says that God was not on the cross. Do you understand the significance of the issue? Yeah, the heavenly being was present with Jesus so that he could do miracles and that he had knowledge and that he had wisdom, great, but the spirit departed from him as he was crucified. Now, if that was being taught to the church and people were saying, really, I didn't know that. Thank you for giving me such insight. And then people said, no, 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 that's not right. And so do you see how there would be a divide, a split? I hope there would be. And we wouldn't all just say, oh, that's, that's great. I guess we believe that now. But there was divide among the people. There were those who left because they wanted to believe this and there were those who remained and they started to question their very faith. Do we believe the right thing about Jesus? Can this be? Who was Jesus on the cross? A water only gospel according to John is one that doesn't see Jesus as the God man, but instead just as a good man who did good things that we should do too. Do you know anybody who might believe in Jesus as a good man, but not as the God-man? Jesus Christ, however, as God in the flesh, took on himself the penalty for sin as God in the flesh. Because how could a man, and only a man, bear the weight of the wrath of God on himself? If that were true, why couldn't we just all do it ourselves? Right? Right? If a man could bear the weight of God's wrath and survive, like Jesus did, then why can't we all just go through it, have a little punishment, and then go to heaven? Well, there's a belief that lets you believe that, right? Bear a little punishment, and then you can go to heaven. But that's an incorrect view. Why is John so concerned with this? Because it seems like, are we splitting hairs here? Why is this important? Do we really need to cover this? Do we really need to talk about this? It's awfully basic, isn't it, that Jesus was the God-man? Or is it awfully basic? According to a survey by Barna, one-third of evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, but that he was a good man and that we should do as Jesus did. Is this present among us? Jesus was able to shed his blood as a man and become a substitute for us. Correct. And as God, he was able to take the full wrath of God and be raised back to life. So Jesus had to be man, shed his blood. Jesus had to be God in order to survive the wrath of God. Right? You understand why he had to be both man and God? Why not just God? Why not just man? Why the God-man? He had to bring two worlds together. And he did it perfectly. To deny one or the other is to fall into great heresy and to not believe in the Jesus that is the Savior. And if you don't believe in the Jesus that is the Savior, you don't know the Father because you know the Father through the Son only. Okay, but he continues. Look at the second half of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is the one that testifies. Listen to this. In Romans eight sixteen, listen to what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Does the Spirit Himself bear witness to your spirit that you are indeed a child of God? Great. You know, I, I met uh, two Mormons right, outside, right, right here, right, right outside here, right by our trash cans, and had a little talk with them, talked to them for a while. And I said, How do you know that what you know is right? Do you know what their answer was? By, by the way, do, do Mormons believe like we believe about Jesus? I hope you know the answer is no. I said, how do you know that what you know is right? Guess the answer. They said, it's a feeling I get from God that it's right. Oh, well, who, who can argue with that? Can you argue with that? No, it doesn't. I've been inside you. I know that that feeling is not what it's saying. But how can you, how can you, how can you deny that? How can you argue with it? It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument based on emotion, an argument based on feeling. Our culture loves to do that, to create arguments based on a feeling. Just because you have a feeling about something doesn't make it correct. That needs to be a magnet on our refrigerators just because I feel this way doesn't make it correct. We need to be reminded of that fact. It's something that haunts us all the time. It's something that it it creates us in in situations of, of fear. It makes us flee to things. It makes us have emotions that aren't founded on any basis of reality. So what the Mormons were saying is, well, I feel as though this is right. Is that what we as Christians are to say? Because the Spirit himself testifies that this is true. So, for those who have the Spirit of God, it is absolutely the case that, yes, the Spirit of God inside of you testifies that this is true, that you really are a child of God. That is true. But if we simply appeal to, well, I just know that I know that I know that I know because of the feeling that I have. We have more than that. We do have that. Not to be neglected. We do have that. But you know what? We have more. We have more. A person cannot say that Jesus was only a man, but he must say that Jesus was the Son of God. We would say that to be true. You can't say that Jesus was just a man. You have to say that he was also the Son of God. Both of those things are true. You know much about Unitarians? You know, there's a Unitarian church in Cookville. I watch some of their stuff, see what they're all about and what they believe. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Did you know that? But he's the Son of God, see. Only the Father is God himself, and Jesus is the Son of God, not God. They believe that God is one unified being, not divided into three. In other words, Unitarians uh, reject the Trinity. No Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, no, no. Father only. Have they got something wrong? How do you know? Because they say, well, they're going to point to the text. Does it not say that Jesus is the Son of God in your Bible? Well, yes. So, see. Evaluate yourself, check yourself. There are a lot of things like this, right? It's a feeling you get. Is that what we mean? Those who have departed from the church in Asia do not admit that they've departed from the faith. Don't you see that? they still say, no, 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 we are, the right, we are the correct Christians. You are the wrong Christians. You don't believe yet. You haven't arrived yet. So John comes to correct a false belief. He said, I want to give you assurance of what you believe. Jesus did not come with the water only. They're wrong. Jesus came with the water and with the blood, and the Spirit testifies that this is true but he continues to help us in what that means. That's why he says in verses seven and eight, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And by the way, these three agree. I have to draw your attention to something because if there's anyone with a King James Version Bible in the room, you will notice that you have a couple extra sentences. Let me tell you why those sentences should not be there. There's a few sentences that are in the King James Version of the Bible, being that the King James Bible was translated from what's called the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus is kind of a, it's, it's from a, a Greek document that originally Erasmus uh, put together. Now, when Erasmus came up with this Greek New Testament, uh, he left out a couple extra phrases here in verse 7. And the people that were paying him said, you better go ahead and put those phrases back in. They probably didn't say it like that. But they said, you need to put those phrases back in because they uphold the Trinity. And Erasmus said, I find no Greek manuscripts that have those words in them. None. Zero. There are no Greek manuscripts that support that being in the text. And so he said, so here's what I'll do. You find me one Greek manuscript that has that in the text, and I'll go ahead and put it in you know, they found one. They found one. And what happened was someone translated it into Greek and produced him with a Greek manuscript that said what he wanted it to say. So these words don't appear in any document earlier than the ninth century and only in the Latin tradition at that point. And when you do find it in the Greek, it's written only in the margin, meaning people are saying this, that it relates to this. And then then later it was inserted into the text. That's a little bit of background in that. But that's why all of your critical editions, such as your NASB and ESV and NIV and all these types of things, they're not going to have those wordings in them because they were not in the original manuscripts. But he says, these three agree. Why do I say that, by the way? Let me read for you what it says. You'll, You'll understand why I'm saying that. It says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So in other words, uh, it's saying, don't you see how it's all about the Trinity? Now, we want to support the Trinity. We believe that the Trinity is in the Bible. We we believe that the Trinity is true, but we only want the Bible to say what it said and not anything else. So what does it say here, and what what does it mean? it's going to mean something that's going to support John's argument. I will pause here to say, you see what I mean? I was, t- <laughs> I was telling the elders this morning, I said, I'm a little nervous about today's sermon. And I said, I'm a little nervous about today's sermon because there are some things that we need to discuss about today's text And some of them may be interesting or not interesting. But I can't disregard them because I want us all to understand the point. And what we need to do in a text that has a historical context is we need to take ourselves and transport ourselves back to the text that we might understand what would they have heard, what would they have understood, Why would they have wanted to hear these words and what impact would it have made on them? And then once we understand that, we bring it to where we are today. But to simply take the text and make it mean something that it doesn't mean is not faithful to what God has said. Do you follow that? Sometimes some texts require more work than others. But I hope that when we conclude our time together that we will all be able to leave and say, I understand the word of God better and I understand my Savior more because understanding the word helps us understand, understand the person and work of Christ. So if we can go deeper in our knowledge of understanding, we go deeper in our knowledge of God himself. And is this not what we want? To have more of him? To understand him more, what he has done for us in the gospel? And how to protect ourselves from error. Do you want to be protected from error? Me too. Me too. You want this church to be protected from error? Me too. If you hear someone else saying something, and you can say, but that's not right. I want us to be protected from that as well. Here's what we can say. Is that God has chosen to confirm his message with three witnesses. The Spirit, the blood, and the water. Okay? Why three, and of what significance does that have? Well, we remember from Deuteronomy 15. How are cases brought to bear on the basis of how many witnesses? Two or three. God chose three. Three seems better. He went with three. You can't deny what what God is saying here about Jesus. He's given you three testimonies. He's given you three accounts to prove his case. He wants you to understand what he has said. And the thing that he's saying right now is this, is that the Spirit's internal testimony and the entire ministry of Jesus present one unified truth concerning the person and work of Jesus, and that is what's being said. The Spirit's internal testimony that we have as children of God and the entire ministry of Jesus, that is his baptism up to his crucifixion, did you see that they're all pointing to the same truth? So if we deny something about his ministry then the three-chord testimony is being broken. If we deny something about his crucifixion, which is that he was God at his crucifixion, we're breaking that three-chord testimony. And he says in these three what agree. I would say it maybe in more simple terms here to bring us to bear on what's being said and how we might apply it today and that's this this spirit is never going to lead you or give you a feeling about something that is contrary to what God has confirmed in his word. Do you see how that principle applies? You ever had a feeling about something that you thought was so right? And you were convinced, I mean, you were convinced of it. And then someone else had disagreed with you. I don't think that's biblical, they said. And you said, well, oh, how could you say that? I feel that so deeply in my soul. How could you ever say that to me? And they say, well, we can look at it if you want. Um, It says here, and you point out the error of their ways, and that person says, oh, okay, yeah, no, you're right. You're right, you're right. Is that generally what happens? They say, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to read it. I don't want to know what it says. Get that away from me. And this is the kind of thing we do when we are so emotionally convinced that something is right, but we don't want to hear it. I wonder, is there something in your life, and maybe it's not about the person of Jesus Christ, his identity, his ministry, but it's something that this group was sure of. I wonder, is there something in your life that you're just convinced of, but it doesn't accord with the testimony of God's word. It's incorrect, even though you feel really emotional about it that you're right. We have to guard ourselves against these emotions, right? I see a lot of, you guys don't see what I see, but I see a lot of smirks on people's faces. And what that tells me is this you understand what I'm saying. We love to get ourselves out of being wrong. And how do we do it? By being emotional. If I'm emotional enough, someone will usually leave me alone about it, right? You tell me I'm wrong about something and I break down in tears and I start shaking. They say, well, I'm going to back up from that situation. I'll just leave you alone about that. I don't know. We'll revisit that another time, maybe. I don't know. If we overreact emotionally, people are probably going to leave you alone. If you want to go with that and use that, that's up to you. I can't stop you. But what I can tell you is that's wrong. In a culture that is so obsessed with emotional responses, guard yourself from it. It leads you into error. Be renewed in your thinking and in your mind with what the Word of God has said to us. Now, we've taken some time in those verses, and it's good. Verses 9 through 12 are so easy after this because now we understand what he's saying. So let's just look at verses 9 through 12 as kind of a whole unit. And it's very simple. It's it's very straightforward what he's saying to us. So let's look at it. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Do you remember in 1 John, I'll just pause for a second, that he started by saying, this was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked, which we have touched. If I tell you I saw it, I heard it, I touched it. Like, well, you know me. It's easy to believe your word because, I mean, you're standing right here. We can take the testimony of men at face value, that's okay. But you have to take the testimony of God based on what? What's the word? Faith. We have to take the testimony of God based on faith. And if you don't have faith, guess what you don't have? salvation because we are saved on the basis of our faith i don't want to i don't want to look at that because i'm being rebellious right now it's different than i don't believe that's true you you see a clear clear cut difference right there This is the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. It's all about Jesus. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony where? Where is that located? Where's the testimony? In yourself. It's located in myself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God bore concerning his son. Specifically for them, what did this mean? That the testimony said that he came with not only water, but water and the blood, that he was the God-man that was the propitiation for our sins, as John has already said. So if you don't believe that, you're calling God a liar. Verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son, his son properly identified, right? Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Faith in the testimony of God that who his son is, is who his son is. And who is he as the son of God? He is God himself, the God-man in the flesh who lived A perfect, sinless life who died on a cross to take the wrath of God in our place. He became our substitute. And he did not stay dead, but he was raised back to life. Why? Because he was only a man? But because he was the God man. And he was raised to life for our justification. So the central message is what? That God has given us eternal life. I paused here and there's No other details to work through. There are are no other historical pieces of insight that I'm going to share with you right now. I'm going to tell you this one thing, and it's the one thing that John wanted his entire audience to hear. So hear me if you've tuned out. We cannot ever forget the central message of the gospel, which is eternal life. Sometimes we lose perspective on what God has done for us, by losing our eternal perspective. Have any of you got caught up in this life recently? For whatever one reason or another. My most recent thing that lets me lose eternal perspective is this. My air conditioner is broken at my house. You know what that does immediately for me? It makes me think about the here and now and about how I'm hot. And it's going to be 95 degrees tomorrow. And I'm thinking about the here and the now and the suffering and the torment and then I'm gonna melt and then woe is me. It's very easy with something so simple to lose our eternal perspective, isn't it? We need to be a church that doesn't lose our eternal perspective on what God has done for us. We can look at the ins and outs of how all these pieces work together in the historical context and who Jesus is and who he is not and we can piece all that together and fantastic. But if in any of this you have lost sight of eternal life, you've got it wrong because it's all about eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what he came to give, eternal life. And if you don't have the son, if you don't have faith in him for who he really is, So that means that if you wrongly identify Jesus and you have faith in that Jesus, do you have eternal life? No, because you haven't had faith in the real Jesus. Do you see it? I believe we live in a culture where people have identified Jesus a certain way and they have faith in that Jesus. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of history. To have faith in the wrong God is to not have faith in God. So yes, we must properly identify who he is to be careful that we are believing in the right Jesus Christ, the true Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done. Because if we have the son, guess what we have? Eternal life. We're taking the Lord's Supper this morning and we celebrate the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ together. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came for us to break his own body, the weight of God crushed him, to shed his own blood for us, for us, for you, and for me. God Almighty took on flesh for worthless little me. Not to come and have a kingly, glamorized life, but no. In fact, to be born into poverty and to be hated among men and abused and cursed and killed at the hands of men. But he was not only a man, he was the God-man and so death could not hold him. And so he was raised. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father today. I'd like to just read for you 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 34, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord, which is not something that you want. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat as we have done today, Wait for one another, and if someone's hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. He's saying, behave yourselves properly when you come together. Humble yourselves before one another when you come together. And then he says, about some other things, I'll give directions when I come, but he gave directions about this. Why? Because it's important. A church that neglects the direct instructions of Scripture is neglecting what God has has had to say to us, and we shouldn't do that. There are three things that we should be doing as we take the Lord's Supper for all of us. We're looking back at what Christ did for us historically. What has he done? Who was he? His person and his work. He died on a cross as our substitute, as our atonement for sins. He was raised to life for our justification and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We remember what Jesus did. But then we look forward because Jesus isn't done, is he? Is he coming back one day? We look forward to Christ coming back. If you don't look forward to Christ coming back today in victory and in joy, we've not done what God said to do during this time. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's not a somber reality, but a joyful reality. We get to together proclaim the Lord's death Because it's our victory over sin and death. Without his death, we have no victory over sin and death. So we proclaim it today together until he comes. So never stop doing it. And then we look inward because there is a way to take the Lord's Supper improperly in an unworthy manner. We don't want to do that. We want to take it in a worthy manner. What does that worthy manner look like? Examining ourselves. Looking inward. Is there any sin in me? The answer is... Yes. (laughs) So probably a better question is, what sin is in me that I have not repented of? Right? Isn't that the question? You see, some people I think are under the wrong impression of what the Lord's Supper is for. They think it's for the perfect Christian. There are some who know that we're doing the Lord's Supper and they say, well, that's not the day I'm going because I won't be able to take the Lord's Supper and everyone will know how bad I am. you realize that the Lord's Supper exists because we're all sinners. We are all sinners gathered in the room together. We ought to be repentant sinners who come to the Lord's table saying, I have evaluated myself and I find myself not worthy. I have evaluated myself and I find myself to be in sin. So you confess your sin to God, that is you say to God what is true about your sin. And you turn from it. But you can only turn from your sin if you have the Spirit of God. You can only overcome the world if you have the Son of God. Right? So confess your sin to Him. So the Lord's Supper is for sinners. Sinners who have been redeemed by means of their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we come this morning and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It is a celebration of victory over sin and death. It's a celebration of what Jesus did, what he's going to do, what he's doing now in our lives. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to have some instrumental music that we'll be playing. And that is a time for you to to pray, to examine yourself, to think about what Jesus has done and what he will do when he comes back, to joyfully celebrate this time together. And then once you've done that, you can come uh, in your own time, And take the Lord's Supper, eat and drink and celebrate together. And then after our instrumental music, we are gonna sing one more song together as a church before we leave for today, okay? So I just wanna encourage you. Remember that the Lord's Supper is for sinners and that what God wants from you now is simply to bow before him in your heart, ask for forgiveness and admit you're wrong to him and rely fully on what Christ has done for you this morning. That's what he wants from you. Okay, let's all pray.